Do you get excited for projects? I actually do around the house because I have a ton of steel power tools at my house. S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. If you're in the market for chainsaws, if you're in the market for blowers, trimmers, they not only make the project easy and quick, they make it fun. And they have over 9,000 dealers around the country. Steel, a company built on real power, tools built for real people and dealers who deliver real service. Over 9,000 independent local dealers, as I told you, throughout the country. Find the one nearest you at steeldealers.com, S-T-I-H-L. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman. What's wrong with the Rockies? It's the hitting. It is, Julie. Yes, Nolan. He did also talk about his own performance. I mean, he pointed his finger first at himself. Alana Rizzo updates us on the incoming Dodgers. This is a team that has a ridiculous amount of firepower in their lineup. I will say this, though. There's some guys that are underperforming. Plus, the Nuggets. They're on house money right now. The Lakers are going to realize that. But, but let's not forget one thing. Really, really good basketball team. And Vic Fangio's oops. I'm not firing anybody one game into the season, but that was troubling. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Roman. That we're off on show number 62, the Drew Goodman Podcast with Julie Brownman. I'm Drew. Julie, you'll hear from momentarily. And Julie, I have to be honest with you out of the gate. Uh, we taped this on a Wednesday late afternoon. We both have our beers. The Rockies <laughs> unfortunately lost to the A's 3-1 to one today. They'll welcome in the Dodgers beginning tomorrow. And um, I, I'm probably going to talk like I have marbles in my mouth um, because, you know, I lose my focus late in the day anyhow, especially after ad-libbing for three and a half hours. Well, that I'm looking forward to, actually. Marbles in my mouth? Marbles in your mouth, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have to say, um, I tuned in late today. You really would never be able to tell anything about the season sometimes when I listen to you or when I watch you guys, which is great, you know? Well, um, if you mean that from an enthusiasm standpoint, yes. thank you. And um, we have a great crew, as you know. Um, and, and I take that as a compliment. I think it, it's always a fine line because – as a broadcaster of a team, you are significantly biased. I love when people say, oh, you're a homer. Hey, no shit, I'm a homer. I want the <laughs> Rockies to win. I want them to go 162-0, and 0, just like I assume most of the fans out there do. You're right, I'm a homer. And I've got news for you. If you go to Cincinnati or you go to Tampa or if you go to New York or Chicago or L.A. or anywhere in between, they're all homers too. Yeah. And – I think I know what you're saying is that even when things aren't good and after the 11-3 and three start, by and large, things have not been great for the Rockies, we try to bring enthusiasm. But you can't lie. You cannot lie. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. You have to be honest with people, maybe not completely honest as much <laughs> as you would normally do in private conversation, but you can't, you can't just tell everybody, oh, it's rosy when it's not. Right. Um, I've also enjoyed seeing Spilling – Grilling, grilling. Yeah, on Has, Sundays. Yeah, I mean that's kind of fun, right? Has he ever it, made anything? It seems like everything kind of turns out. Well, if, so he hasn't shared any, <laughs> and, and there's some dishes I don't want <laughs> to share. Actually, he, I think he's done a really good job. The ribs looked really good. Did. Um, there, there were a couple other dishes. Spilly's mm -hmm. great. Spilly's, Spilly's a television natural. He's, he's a funny guy. He's self-deprecating and grilling with with Spilly Sunday on his deck has, has kind of been hilarious. I think it's great. I think yeah. the creativity has been great. So the steel power drive of the game, as we get into a little bit of baseball, uh, first time in four years at Coors Field, somebody's pitched a complete game, and that was Antonio Sensatella. He was great, and we're taping again Wednesday, Tuesday night. First complete game since John Gray in 2016 famously struck out 16 Padres and threw a complete game. The Rockies had a complete game last year. Herman Marcus threw a, a one-hitter in San Francisco. In fact, had a no-hitter for a good portion of that game. And they're rare in baseball today, period, and they're especially rare at Coors Field. And Senzatella, what a marvelous performance. Um, we're going to get into that here. I mean, the starting pitching, by and large, has been really good. You look, Senzatella, Julie, has a 330 earned run average. Great, you know, they're, we're, we're basically a third of the way through what would be a normal major league season. Um, Kyle Freeland, as we tape tonight, has a mid-three ERA. 
Herman lost the game today, but he gave up three runs in six and two-thirds. His last three starts, um, seven innings, two runs, seven innings, two runs, and today six and two-thirds and three runs. That should be a winning performance at Coors Field. The starting pitching has been solid. The pen has not. Penn has not been good, 29th in, in ERA, um, but I but I like some of their pieces. I like Daniel Bard. I think Kinley, for the most part, has been good. Um, it's been a breakout year for Yancey Almonte. Um, so, so they do have pieces. Do you know what the biggest problem has been? And no one would ever think this normally with the Rockies. It's the hitting. It is, Julie. It's the Which is crazy when you think about some of those names that we see out there, right? I mean, we should, maybe we made the mistake of assuming this is a sure thing, right? Well, I think what happens is when you have two of the best players in baseball all around, in in Nolan Arenado and Trevor Story, and Charlie Blackman, who is an elite hitter, and he's solid defensively. Some people beat up his defense. doesn't matter. He plays right field. He gets a ball and a half a game. And I think Charlie, I think they're unfair to him, actually. But Charlie's an elite hitter. Outside of that, though, the drop-off has been precipitous, and it's not just this year. It's been over the last several years, and there's statistics, advanced analytics that back it up that suggest, yeah, the Rockies' core group is pretty solid offensively, better than solid, you know, top, top third in baseball with that group we talked about. But the next grouping, the next four or five, have not been even league average. And so you have kind of a, a almost a an out of balance offense. And in this shortened season, you know Trevor's been solid. Charlie had the phenomenal first few weeks where he's hitting 500. Naturally, he was going to come down off of that. Overall, his numbers are are pretty good. Nolan has not had a Nolan Arenado year offensively. And then you take the rest of the group, you know, mostly young guys, and. I was excited about a lot of those guys, and in time, I think they'll be good players. But not just this year, the last few years, their offense has probably been overrated. And the biggest issue this year, without question, as to why they're under 500 right now has been, if you had to pick one thing above all others, it's been their offense. You know, a lot of times in sports, you talk about windows for sports teams, and you just hope that those younger bats that we've talked about a lot in this podcast can catch up really quick because we're going to talk about Nolan's comments, but how long does the, do those three stay together, right? You want them to be able to have that support and you got to have that support pretty quickly. You do. And it's, you're a hundred percent accurate. It's always a balance of our, do you have championship material or are you rebuilding? I think when teams get in trouble is when they fall into that middle class thinking they can contend and they really can't, but they don't want to rebuild. I think the Rockies do have a lot of pieces. I think, and we talked about this a lot during the the hiatus, Julie. We talked about it when it looked like the season was going to start on time way back in February that the rotation is underrated. And I think the p- rotation, as we discussed earlier, has performed by and large pretty well. Um, the the bullpen, that's always going to be moving parts in the bullpen. But you have three guys in their prime, or two very much in their prime, in Nolan and Trevor. Mm-hmm. Charlie's a little bit older, but he can still hit. Can you complement those guys going forward with, with other bats so you can still make a, a championship run? Because they've been in the playoffs two of the last three years. You hold out hope that they can still make a run over the last dozen games as we tape today. Um, but I think the key will be, and we'll we'll get to this in future shows, you have to find out from Nolan, is he going to opt out? Because if he's going to opt out, that changes the whole direction, I think, of the club. But you know, if, you, if you're going to keep him in the fold, there's enough pieces there, but you have to augment them offensively somehow. So when I think about, we know the names of the younger players, but when I think about guys that they brought in that they thought were going to bolster this offense, Ian Desmond, um, Daniel Murphy, those haven't necessarily panned out. Well, Desmond, his first three years, okay numbers, but not what they had hoped for. Was injured, right, not what they had hoped for. Daniel Murphy got hurt last year, tried to come back, 
you know, whatever to his credit with the broken finger a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. Didn't have a Daniel Murphy the year. Got off to a good start this year. Yeah. He got off to a really good start. He's now lost his position to Josh Fuentes. Um, and he, you know, Daniel has not, you know, performed to the level they thought he would. He's been a great offensive player in his career. So you can, it, it's easy to point and say this one didn't work out, that one didn't work out. But there's still a window there with this talent. They're going to have to find a way to take advantage, not just in the next couple of weeks, but going forward over the next couple of years. So as we tape this podcast, the Rockies are 22 and 26, 12 more games, uh, four at home against the Dodgers, and then four at San Francisco and four at Arizona. We've talked a lot about hit on Nolan. So Nolan made the news. Nolan made big Rockies news, basically saying um, that if, the Rockies don't make the postseason, and it's different this year. Eleven or eight teams on each side makes the playoffs. That he, his quote is, "If we don't make the playoffs, that's not a very good sign." Now, before you freak out and think, "Oh my God, this is it," he's telling us he's not coming back. He did also talk about his own performance. He that did. He wasn't living up to expectations. No, I mean he pointed his finger first at himself. You know, it's it's that old line. You know, if you point, if I'm pointing my finger at you, my thumb is is actually probably directed toward myself and he did say he said I haven't I have not played up to my capabilities offensively and he took ownership of that uh, a couple of times during his about 15 minutes with the media yesterday on on a zoom call in front of the ball game Mm -hmm. but what stood out is what he said and Julie you and I have talked about this and I said basically the same thing a week ago that there's no one in this organization whether it's a player, a superstar player like Nolan or anyone in the front office or, or Dick Montfort that's going to say, oh, you know, this was okay. With the start they got off to, with the focus they had as a group saying, hey, we want to show that 2019 was an aberration and we're the team that was really good in 2018, really good in 2017 and a postseason team, um, coupled with the fact that there's three more playoff teams Anything short of the postseason was not just going to be a disappointment. It was going to be, you know, a, a failed opportunity. And and Nolan was reflecting not only what they think, I think, in that clubhouse, but what every person in that organization is going to think if they don't make the postseason this year. Yeah, it would be a huge missed opportunity. So he also did talk about his sore, so hard for me to say, sore shoulder Sore Whoa, shoulder. <laughs> I never knew you had that issue. Oh, now it's. I do contagious. when it's a little bit later. Sore shoulder. He right. had AC joint. Yeah. So he admitted that it's been bothering him a lot, and that it's. I think it, it has limited his capabilities, but he doesn't want to use that as an excuse. No, because he also said there have been times he felt great this year, and he he was um, also upfront and saying this is not an excuse, and you know, guys, guys never want to talk about injury, and the reason is that they never want it misconstrued as, oh, he's saying that the reason, you know, his performance on the ice wasn't up to speed or on the court wasn't up to speed or on the field wasn't up to speed is he was hurt. Everybody plays at less than 100% once the season's underway. I can't sit here and tell you how much it's affected him, but he did come out and say that's not a reason as to why I haven't put up the kind of numbers I'm used to putting up so far. All right, so for Nolan Arenado and the boys, there are 12 more games left as of Wednesday, the 16th, when we're taping this. As I mentioned, four against the Dodgers at home, four at San Francisco, and four at Arizona. And we talked we talked off the air. Well, Arizona, I mean, we should they, hope they're, they're that having they a bad do. year. They're having yeah. a bad year. But here's the deal. You can't, it's baseball. You can't take anything for granted. You can't say, oh, Arizona's bad. We're going to win four there. It doesn't work that way. You know, the Rockies went three and one against a really good Oakland yeah. team. Yeah. So the Dodgers come to town. We know how talented the Dodgers are. The Rockies have to play well against them. They have 12 games left. They have to win nine of them. I really believe if they win nine, they'll be in. 31 wins, I think, will get them in. And nine out of 12, not easy, but it's doable. It's not It's not, it's not like going 12-0. and 0. They had the great run back in 07. They don't have to even replicate that. San Francisco's key because San Francisco right now – this could change, but right now sits in the final playoff spot in the National League. 
Cincinnati's involved, Milwaukee's involved. All you can control is how you play. But you have four opportunities to play the Giants, which will be huge. The Giants are okay. They're not world beaters. And then, as you said, you finish against an Arizona team, and hopefully by then they're just they're checked out and ready to go on vacation. So we'll see. Okay, so 12 more games left to go for the Rockies. We mentioned the Dodgers. When we come back, you caught up with one of our old friends, Alana Rizzo, who does pregame shows and postgame shows and sidelines and does a bunch of stuff for the Dodgers. She's been doing it for a number of years. So we're going to hear from Alana uh, coming up in just a little bit. But first, as you know, the NBA playoffs are really getting good. How about those Nuggets? We're going to talk about the Nuggets in a little bit. They're going to the Western Conference Finals. Of course, the NHL playoffs, they're in their conference finals. The NFL, thank God, is finally underway. So that means it's time for you to get in the game by playing on the Bet Monarch app. So easy to do. Just download the Bet Monarch app in the Apple App Store for your Apple device, or you can do it on Monarch Casino's website, monarchblackhawk.com for your Android devices. And here's another super cool thing. Every wager earns comps for use on the Monarch Casino property up in Blackhawk. They have a gorgeous property. So if you do decide to head on up to their casino, you can wager 24-7 on their sports betting kiosks. So if you decide to head up to the beautiful casino, you can wager 24-7 at their sports betting kiosk. But if you want to get into the game from the comfort of home, head on over to the Bet Monarch app. So it's been kind of crazy weather in Colorado. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's hot. But it doesn't matter if it's cold or hot. It's time for what, Drew? Boyer's Coffee. Exactly. Sounds delicious at any point. So if you head to their website, boyerscoffee.com, oh my gosh, you can order flavors like hazelnut, French vanilla, Denver blend, butterscotch toffee, southern pecan. The list goes on and on and on. So basically, we're telling you there's a coffee for every flavor that you've got. While you're there, sign up to get on their email list. I subscribe every week. I get a great offer to buy a couple bags, get one free or other great discounts. If you want to just pick up a bag at the grocery store or a box of the Keurigs, just head on over to your local supermarket. Or if you shop at Sam's Club or Walmart, you can find Boyer's Coffee there. And another reminder, if you're in the area, go on over to the 73rd and Washington location, pick up a bag of coffee from their coffee cottage, or order up a fresh roasted cup of coffee from their coffee truck. I did that today. You can't miss it. It's at 73rd and Washington. And with that, I had an opportunity to catch up with an old friend. And it's kind of like, where are they now? And I think maybe some Rockies fans have lost track of Alana Rizzo. For a couple of reasons, I have this theme in my head because I love the doors and it got me through college listening to L.A. Woman. So you're a Colorado girl, but are you an L.A. woman now? (laughs) I'd have to say yes. You know, I never thought that I would love living here as much as I do. In fact, I almost didn't take the Dodger job because all I knew L.A as was a perspective from the visitor, and I didn't think I liked it. And I was very hesitant to move here because I all I knew was the traffic and the perceived uh, reputation of the people. And I'm really glad that I didn't listen to myself. I love living here. And I, you know, two years after moving here, I actually moved by the beach, which was life-changing. So um, I'm always a Colorado girl at heart. I love Colorado. Born and raised there. will always be home. But L.A. is pretty great. Now you're a fixture on the Strand, right, in Manhattan Beach? (laughs) Only when I'm walking. I certainly can't afford anything down there. It's a wishful thinking when you walk on the Strand. But, um, yeah, I've I've walked on the Strand a time or two uh, to either go get, you know, lunch or coffee or or walk the dog or whatever. Um, A lot of beautiful views, but certainly wishful thinking. It's way above my pay grade. Well, it's, uh, you, you can do like, you know, I would, I do, I, I get my rental car when we're playing the Dodgers and I go down to Manhattan beach and I run on the strand. I eat lunch and, uh, and lie on the beach and then go to the ballpark. It's not a bad gig. That's a good day. That's a really good day to come down to the, the South Bay. Everyone thinks of LA as, you know, the, the chaos, uh, which there is a part of that. There's an element of that, but, uh, if you're going to live in California, you better live by the water. You better live by the water. That is, that is a uh, great advice. Okay. Um, it could be and should be and maybe eight division titles in a row for the team that you closely follow in the Dodgers. 
Is this the best version of the Dodgers? How do you compare this team with some of the other ones? And I know at the end of the day, the Do- you know, to Dodger faithful, you guys still have fallen short because you haven't won a championship. But how do you compare and contrast? If this is on paper by far the best Dodger team. If you look up and down the lineup, uh, they were already a World Series caliber team before the acquisition of Mookie Betts. And to sign him to a very long-term deal is only going to pay dividends for this club uh, for more than a decade to come. This is a team that has a ridiculous amount of firepower in their lineup. I will say this, though. There's some guys that are underperforming uh, in this season, albeit a very short season. There's only 12 games left as you and I sit here and have this conversation. Cody Bellinger hasn't gained any traction. Max Muncy, Doc Peterson, those three lefties in particular are not playing the way that they are certainly capable of playing. That being said, despite the fact that they're scuffling a little bit offensively, Max Muncy's on bases there. He's just his slug isn't there. Uh, despite the fact that they are scuffling offensively, this team still has the best record in all of baseball. So being that it is only a 60-game season, I think if they can get hot at the right time, uh, there's not going to be many teams that can beat them. Yeah, I mean, on paper, and, and not even forget on paper, just how they've gone out and played, uh, they've been extraordinarily good. And, and I thought early on, especially when Kershaw had to miss his first start because of the back, and you're thinking, oh, no, this could go south. And and there were, you know, Ken Maeda was, you know, was in Minnesota. You're thinking, hey, maybe this Dodger team is not as, as good they're still good but wouldn't be as dominant as everybody predicted but even with the uh, performances of bellinger below what you'd expect and as you said muncie below what you expect this team just rolls and, and a lot of the games aren't even close a lot yeah they do roll and you know kershaw is having such a good year uh as you mentioned missing the first start of the season with the back issue and you know he's not quite to where he needs to be as far as innings pitch to be a qualifier for the Cy Young Award, but he's definitely in the conversation. Uh, he has had such a good year and an uptick in velocity as far as his fastball is concerned. When he has that fastball slider and curveball working, he is just as dangerous in 2020 as he was, you know, in his earlier Cy Young years in which he already has three of those, almost four, coming in second to R.A. Dickey. So. Clayton Kershaw looks really good. And then you have Walker Bueller, who still hasn't really um, been what he needs to be this year. And now he's on the IL for the second time with that blister issue. But you also have Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin, neither one of which was even supposed to be on the opening of the roster. The only reason Dustin May was was because he was a spot start for Kershaw on opening day. And those two guys are legitimate contenders for the third spot in the Dodgers starting rotation for that three-game series if the Dodgers are, you know, that first seed. So, this is going to be an interesting situation. You have Clayton Kershaw, seemingly Walker Bueller, if the blister's going to be okay. And then you have either, I think it's going to be Dustin May in that third spot. So uh, this is a team that they have continued to be able to acquire key pieces without giving up their farm system and the high prospects in the farm system. So it's not as if they are unloading their farm system to get these perennial superstars. They're able to get these superstars and keep the key pieces for the future as well. Very hard to develop as well as perform in the same season, and the Dodgers have been able to do that. As it turns out, and you documented that so very well, as it turns out, the Dodgers have been able to kind of pluck some guys. Max Muncy always comes to mind first, you know, almost off the scrap heap, and they don't become just solid players. They become like stars. Chris Taylor – Maybe not a star, but Chris Taylor is a really good player. Why do you think, being so close to the Dodgers, why do you think they've been able to do that um, somewhat frequently? Having spoken to the players about that very thing as often as I have, seeing that this is my seventh season covering this team, they allow players to be who they legitimately are. When Chris Taylor was in Seattle – and then comes over to the Dodgers, nobody really even knew who Chris Taylor was. And now there's some people that can argue very quietly that Chris Taylor could be considered an MVP type of guy. He's not the rah-rah guy. He's not Mookie Betts. He's not Cody Bellinger. But if you're talking about wins above replacement, if you're talking about things that he does, the intangibles that he does, he is one of the most consistent solid, dependable guys out there. Max Muncy was out of baseball, sitting on the couch, wondering if he was going to have a job and he's coming off back-to-back 35 home run season, allowing Max Muncy to be who he is. Justin Turner was a non-roster invite in 2014 
basically taking a flyer. He's a Southern California hometown kid. Ned Coletti, the former GM of the team, said, hey, come to spring training, see what you can do. And now Justin Turner is usually one of the faces of this franchise, an all-star, a guy that, you know, is a free agent after the season um, and has absolutely made his mark on this team. And, in fact, he's being activated off of the IL today, dealing with that left hamstring issue. He's going to be the DH tonight against the San Diego Padres in game two of this three-game set, and they desperately need him. I mean, he is going to be a spark to their offense. They need Justin Turner. So this is a team that allows guys to be who they are um, and be the type of player that they are, and it also helps, honestly, that you have guys behind you in the lineup where you don't have to carry the entire load. When There's times when Corey Seager's batting sixth or seventh. Tell me another lineup in this league that can have Corey Seager batting sixth or seventh. No, it's an, but you're right. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches, and – and obviously, when you play in a normal year, each other 19 times, the Rockies know the Dodgers really well. And I can't tell you how many times I've said this through the last several years, Alana, and I've probably said this to you, you know, when we get together before a game. The last guy I, as, as you know, a broadcaster doing the Rockies and want to see the Rockies do well, naturally, the last guy at the games on the line that I want to see in that Dodger lineup with all those great players is Justin Turner. Who, as you said, is coming back, and he just gives you a great at bat, and he's become a hell of a offensive player. He's a good two way player, actually. Yeah, he, he's a hundred percent the guy that I want in the game when the game is on the line is Justin Turner. He is incredibly clutch, and he's a guy that will make the pitcher work. He's a guy that will foul off pitches. He will he will run up a pitch count. He just gives you a quality at bat. Um, I just trust him. I just trust Justin Turner to, to do everything he can to to force the issue and, and win that battle. It is L.A. Naturally, L.A. brings so many other things normally. You know, there's a lot of peripheral distractions. Who is the who's the unquestioned leader? Or if you had to pick two, who are the leaders of this very talented team? Before Mookie got here, I would have said Kershaw, Justin, and and Kershaw and Justin. Now that Mookie's there, I'd say those three. Mookie Betts has assimilated himself into this team as if he's been here for 10 years already. Not only is he a guy that's still coachable and willing to learn, which you'd think, I mean, it was all that he's already accomplished and the ridiculous contract that he just signed, that he earned, I should say, you would think that he would be perhaps unapproachable. He's absolutely not. He's incredibly coachable. But on top of that, he's also a guy that's willing to share that knowledge. And Austin Barnes has really credited him with being able to kind of help him turn his, albeit short season, turn it around offensively a little bit. Mookie is definitely a leader, a guy that took over in spring training and was holding guys accountable early on. You know, you can't be late to workouts. You can't if you're, you know, you're not putting the ball in play, but, you know, he, he instilled a, a fining system for these guys. So Justin Turner, absolutely. Justin Turner is always at the forefront of this team in terms of leadership and a guy that whether he's four for five or 0 for five with three punch outs and two errors, he stands in front of his locker when we were allowed to be in the clubhouse and takes questions. And Clayton Kershaw. I mean, Kershaw's not a rah-rah guy. Um, but he is a guy that absolutely leads by example. And if, if a guy that is a first ballot Hall of Famer, can be the first guy on the field the next day after a start and he's working his butt off, you better believe you, you should do that too. So I would say those three in particular are the leaders of this club. Are you guys, uh, do you think they're feeling the heat of the Padres? We're having a terrific year and obviously are a completely different club than the ones we've uh, typically seen the last decade? No question. I mean, they're in the middle of a series right now where Yesterday, going into the series, they only had a two-and-a-half game lead, and now they have a one-and-a-half game lead. Uh, this is a very different Padres team than it was even before the trade deadline, and then they went out and got a million different players. So this is a team that's a legitimate contender, especially in a 60-game season. I still think over the course of 162, the season, the games are too long and the season is too long to beat the Dodgers. But I think in a 60-game season, I think really – especially when there's eight teams that get in on each side, I think it's anybody's year. And a three-game series to start the postseason terrifies me because I think it's all about who's playing well at the right time. But the Padres are good. They're very good. They have a legitimate lineup, and they're fiery, and they're excited. And I don't think the Padres fear anybody anymore, uh, which is important to have that confidence. Um, And, you know, I think – 
I still think the Dodgers are the team to beat in the division, but I do think that the Padres are a legitimate contender. And, you know, a lot can happen over the course of the next 12 days. There's only a one and a half game difference in the division right now. More with my old friend Alana Rizzo in a moment. But first, got to tell you about Ideal Home Loans. Interest rates are at historic lows, and I have just the place to send you if you're going to refinance, if you're in the market for a new home, if you're going to consolidate debt, call Ideal Home Loans at 303-867-7000. That's 303-867-7000, embarking on their 20th year next year. Brent Ivinson has been in control from day one. He has a terrific staff. They've taken care of me on multiple occasions, and they will take care of you. They have so many repeat people who come back to them because they've done a marvelous job through the years. Give them a call. You'll be super satisfied. 303-867-7000. It's Ideal Home Loans. 303-867-7000. You're Colorado born and bred and you work for the Rockies as, as you know all Rockies fans know for, for a number of years before going to the MLB uh, network. Uh, do you peek in the paper when the Dodgers aren't uh, playing the Rockies or, or watch your old show quick pitch and, and keep up on uh, on Colorado? Yeah, I always know what the Rockies are doing and I'm always paying attention to, you know, what's happening in, in my home state. I, you know, I was watching, I was racing home last night, listening to the Broncos on the, on the radio. And, and I, I got home, you know, with two and a half minutes left to go in the game. I probably should have just kept it off. I'm not sure why we had three timeouts left. It's, with that much time left in the game, but whatever, I'm constantly paying attention to what the Broncos are doing, Colorado, you know, University of Colorado. I know you're a CSU guy. And I, yeah, I pay attention to, you know, the Nuggets, uh, how, how well they're playing in, in the NBA playoffs and obviously cheering for them. And, you know, yeah, I'm always paying attention to what's, what's going on. Um, you know, it's easy to pay attention to the Rockies because they're in the Dodgers division. So, you know, I, I cheer for individual players on, on that team. And, you know, I, I always hope that, it's it's at least a competitive game, um, but Colorado, you know, I'm, I'm from there. I'm always going to pay attention to what's going on there. I, I knew I wanted to give you that plug. And, and hold on one second. Yes, I pull for CSU, but I pull hard for the Buffs. Jacob, my oldest, just graduated from there. All right. He's a smart, smart young man. That Jacob. He, he, he literally and figuratively is a smart young man. <laughs> uh, hey, I want to I want to take you through your career a little bit. When you graduated from CU and you grew up in Colorado Springs, did you know um, you wanted to embark on this career? And what did that mean back then? I mean, uh, I wanted to be years ago. I wanted to be back then. I wanted to be a sports anchor on the news because that was a, that was the way to go. And ultimately became more of a play-by-play guy. How about for yourself? Yeah, I didn't actually. I wasn't the the young girl that had the microphone and was was practicing in the mirror. I didn't even really get into this until much later in life. I went to the University of Colorado, and my undergraduate degree was a bachelor's of science in international business with a marketing emphasis. So I was much more on the sales side of things and the business side of things and was I, I worked in the beverage industry and then hospitality for five years and was incredibly unfulfilled and I didn't even really know about this world uh, coming up um, and I I was always incredibly passionate about sports and, and really kind of had an epiphany in 2001 and said hey if there was anything I could do what would it be and I've always been a sports fan and you know we were a Broncos family growing up uh, we didn't have Major League Baseball in Colorado as you know until 93 when the Rockies came there and you know I was a senior in high school by that point so Baseball wasn't something that I had followed that closely. Um, you know, we were more of a football family, but I always loved sports. And I said, hey, if I could do anything, what would it be? And I went back to school and, you know, kind of took a second mortgage out of my house to pay for my master's degree. And I got a master's in, in broadcast journalism at CU and, you know, started at the bottom. And I remember when I started covering the Rockies in 97, or excuse me, 2007, um, Aaron Cook was our ace, and I didn't even know when I started my broadcasting program what a sinker ball pitcher even was. I mean, it was a fast, fast rise to learning everything I needed to know. And, you know, I started covering the Rockies in 07 in the middle of that crazy run, 21 out of 22 games to go to the World Series. And, you know, when I was a freelancer in 07 and 08 and then became full-time with you guys in, you know, in 2009. And, um it was never 
as a little girl, it wasn't my dream. But once I realized what I wanted to do in 2001, I can't imagine now doing anything else. Well, you, you've, you've done a marvelous job. And, and because of your work with the Rockies, you got an opportunity uh, to, to work nationally at the MLB Network, which you a job you took. And I know because I go back, you know, you've been you and I have been good friends for a long time. And I, I know that that was not a super easy decision. You almost had to kind of be prodded to go, yeah, you got to take this. Yeah, you know, and, I, and that's so true. And it was actually um, after conversations with you and, you know, friend, colleagues in the industry with the Rockies and everything and Ken Miller, um, who was my executive producer at the time at Root Sports Rocky Mountain at the time, um, who's now over at Altitude, he was like, you have to do this because you're going to, you know, you're really going to regret it. And I knew I was ready to go national, but I also knew I loved what I was doing with the Rockies and, and Colorado's home. And I was, you know, thinking to myself, do I really want to leave Colorado again? Because I had just gotten back there, you know, three and a half years prior because I was there <laughs> Texas first, Wichita Falls, Texas, then Madison, Wisconsin, then I went back to Colorado, and then MLB Network called, and I knew I, I was going to regret it if I didn't take the national opportunity, and I'm so thankful that I did. It, it learned, it, it taught me so much, and I learned so much about just broadcasting and ad-libbing and studio hosting and just thinking off the cuff and on the fly, and I think it made me such a better reporter and a host having been there for the two years I was there, but I really missed the ballpark, so when the Dodgers in 2014, launched their new network. I was already covering the National League as well as the American League in 12 and 13 for MLB Network. So I really miss being at the park. I miss being at you know at the at the ball field and and being with the team from the beginning of spring training until the end of postseason. And you know, there's really good and bad in both, and there's different muscles that are exercised at, at both places and. I'm just thankful for the opportunity at MLB Network and, and as well as, as the Dodgers, for sure. You do something on your broadcast now with the Dodgers that I think is awesome. Um, I, I admire it, but it's so unique because you are bilingual. I have seen you multiple times conduct interviews post game with a player who is, you know, from Latin America, who may not be entirely comfortable doing an interview yet in English. And you will ask the question in Spanish, get a reply in Spanish, and then interpret for the audience in English at home, which, you know what, it, it's it's something that very few people can do. And you do it really smoothly. And um, it, it's a joy to watch. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's actually incredibly intimidating. And I I always want to make sure I represent the Latin American players or the Spanish speaking players in a in a respectful light. And you know, my mom was born and raised in Havana, Cuba, so she's a native Spanish speaker. I am not a native Spanish speaker. I can speak Spanish, but not to the level that my mom can or the level that these players can, albeit it's their first language. So it's always a little bit intimidating to make sure that I I represent them in the correct way, but I also feel it's important to allow them to be able to speak in their native language because then I, I do feel you get more out of the player when they have the opportunity to express themselves where they don't have to worry about saying something incorrectly. So I never want to offend any native Spanish speakers, and it's always my fear, you know, that I come across as saying something incorrectly, but I feel like if I give the player a forum and a platform to speak freely, then our audience has an opportunity to get to know them better just as well as they get to know our English speaking players. So when your mom's mad at you, does she yell at you in Spanish still? She used to. My mom didn't have to yell though. That's the thing. She could just give you that Cuban death glare and you knew that you better stop doing whatever the heck you were doing. She didn't have to yell. She just, she gave you the silent treatment and gave you a look that you knew you were basically dead. That is uh, first on our podcast, the Cuban death glare. We have not used that phrase. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the evolution. Again, it's not like you're 80 years old, but the evolution of women in the locker room. And do you even think twice about it anymore? Um, how has it evolved? Do you feel more accepted or do you feel totally accepted and never – feeling like, oh, uh, in, in their minds, I'm still treading on a, on a male environment? No, I don't, I don't feel 
um, intimidated or anything anymore. I think when I first started out and I was going into uh, locker rooms, uh, NFL locker rooms when I was working in Wisconsin and I was covering the Packers and going in there in, in a locker room that I wasn't in every single week. That's where it's a little bit more intimidating when you're not the beat reporter for the team. They're not used to seeing you all the time. I remember Al Harris at the time, a, a, a corner defensive back for the Green Bay Packers. It was during when two-a-days just started and um they were starting to wear pads for the first time. So I was just basically asking a question about wearing pads and he was completely antagonistic and confrontational about that. They weren't wearing pads that day. And I was like, yes, you are, you know, basically looking at my mic, looking me up and down. And I was a very green reporter and I didn't have a lot of NFL experience at the time or really just reporting experience at the time. So that was awful. Um, but the more you do this and the more you have a, a reputation that precedes you, I don't have those same feelings now. I mean, I'm with these guys more than I'm with my own family when we were allowed to go into the clubhouse. Um, and they know I have a job to do and, and they respect me. And it's just, you know, we have a very respectful team, too. Um, I think the Dodgers pride themselves on, you know, making sure that they have quality character guys in the clubhouse. And you know, I, honestly, I've been doing this for so long, I could be half this team's mother. I mean, our guys, they keep getting younger, and I just keep getting older. So um, I don't, you know, I don't feel any different, treated any differently because I'm a woman. That being said, I don't think I get treated better. I don't think I get treated worse. I think I just get treated as a reporter and as a journalist, and that's all I care about. I don't want preferential treatment either way, um, you know, and I, but I can say doors haven't opened for me because I'm a woman either. Well, well, you know what? Well put in terms of how you articulated that. And um, I, I do want before I, before we say goodbye, I want um, you and I are both dog lovers and, and yes. you've started you've started uh, a foundation. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm characterizing that right, but Gidry, who was who was your dog um, to, to foster dogs. And I, um, I have always believed that dogs are my favorite human beings. So uh, and I know you agree. So tell us a little bit about what uh, what you do um, in, in honor of Gidry and um, in Southern California. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, Gidry's Guardian Foundation is a foundation that I launched. Um, it, it became official on the 4th of July of 2019. It's in honor of Gidry, who I adopted uh, from the Humane Society of Boulder in 2009. And basically, it really opened my eyes to the need, the desperate need for fostering and adoption. Uh, almost 700,000 dogs a year are euthanized across our country just because of overcrowded shelters. There's just no place for them to go. And in large cities like Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Chicago, Denver to a certain extent, um, there's just a lot of overcrowded shelters. There's no legislation against backyard breeding. One in every 600 pit bulls actually finds a forever home, yet they're the most overbred breed in our country. And um, they're wonderful dogs. It's not the pit bull. It's not the breed. It's the owner. And Gidry Guardian Foundation is basically a foundation to help rescues um, with medical costs of getting dogs off of the streets and out of high-kill shelters to be able to get them the medical attention that they need to make them adoptable. So Gidry passed away about three weeks after I launched the foundation, but in his name and in his honor, we have had our hand in saving over 100 dogs either off of the streets or out of high-kill shelters, dogs that have been hit by University of Southern California on the 110 and just left for dead, and now that dog who I named Spencer, is now Jagger the Rescue Pup. You can follow him on Instagram. He's living on a winery in Napa, um, and he literally had crushed lungs, fractured jaw, was left for dead, and now he's living a better life than most people I know. So what Gidry's Guardian Foundation does, we're 100% a donation-based foundation. We don't have any government funding or corporate sponsorship. I, I help fundraise, and it's just me. I don't have a staff. Um, I just do whatever I can to fundraise to be able to help dogs in need and all in the name of Gidry, who just absolutely turned my life around when I adopted him. That's awesome. Good for you. And um, good for all the pooches out there that are going to get a home. So, Hey, listen, man, it's great. It's great. It's great catching up as always. It's strange. We've talked about this, you know, in other conversations, uh, not for air, but it is strange this season, not, you know, seeing, 
each other and other colleagues and friends from uh, from not only just the NOS but around baseball. Um, but uh, the world is different right now, and hopefully next year it becomes uh, more normal. I wish you all of the best always. I wish the Dodgers less so. Uh, <laughs> fair. That's fair. I miss you, Goody. Thanks for everything, and uh, Colorado will always be home. It's been, uh, it's been good to talk to you. You as well. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Alana. Okay. Take care. That would be your ideal home loans interview of the week. It's great to hear from Alana. Again, I know she was a fan favorite, but I'm I'm so proud of her, how successful she's been. She has dialed in to that team, obviously. Yeah, she gave a great breakdown on the Dodgers, and, and um, I'd visit with her. She's she's a good friend. I mean, I talk to her a little bit in the offseason also, but we see the Dodgers so much, and she's one of the people I visit with to kind of get background on guys and who's doing what and that sort of thing, and she's really well-respected out there, as she should be. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, she's really made it in a tough business and Julie, you're, you're the same way. I mean, you're, you were a woman, you are still a woman. I still I am. I thought, wait, let woman. me look down. Yeah, yes. You yes. Look, you look like, I'm, 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 you know, you look like a woman to me. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. um, but, <laughs> but in a male dominated environment. It's been a number of years now since women reporters were allowed in the locker room. It's not a story anymore. But right. did you did you feel that it evolved in your time going in locker rooms on a daily basis? Did you 100%, ever feel uncomfortable? A hundred percent. When I first started, was it the Denver Bears or the Zephyrs? One of the players, when I first went in, um, I think it was Jeff Kingery. He saw me. He was walking around. I think only had like a towel on was so surprised to see a woman grabbed another guy and was like yelled like oh my god get in front of me like it was such a surprise to see a woman in the locker room um yeah i mean there were times that were you just felt it was uncomfortable um but then it quickly got fine like you know it you just really you're just there to do a job and you're busy and you're under deadline and um and uh, then suddenly, then I'm not the only woman. At first it starts and then there's another one and then there's another one. And then finally you stop counting. Like at first you're like, okay, great. There's another woman there. And now these days, um, I don't really think about that. And I doubt that Alana does. And I'm sure Alana, you know, she, we talked about kind of has the same story. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's great that it's not a story anymore. You know, I remember when I was doing sports talk radio, that's still was a little, that's male dominated, but there's more and more women. There's more. There's more women there, and and I, it, it, I'm not even going to venture into weighing an opinion. I have no idea what it would be like as a woman to go in a, in a clubhouse or a locker room. But from observing, I, I think guys are so used to it now. The last mm-hmm. ten, fifteen years that for ninety eight percent of them, it's not an issue. And for for somebody, if it is, they certainly don't make it seem that way because they know that that person's just doing their job. And I, I always felt for the women because I know they're in it to do their job, not because they want to be in a locker room with, you know, half dressed guys walking around or that that's not why they're in it. Right. And, and so I always felt for, for the female reporters like yourself, because it had to be, it's far more uncomfortable for you than it would be. You know what, if you want to be seen, then put a towel on. Right, right. And, you know, think about it now, how much media is in the locker room. Like, there's so much media when you think about now, just more, um, there's just more aspects where people are with blogs and so many more outlets that I think the athletes now, they don't even care. They're just, there's just so, like, I think about a Bronco, that Broncos locker room is packed. I wonder what the aftermath of COVID is going to be, because right now no one can be in the locker room. Yeah. And I wonder if, because the players you know, naturally, they they don't love that. I think the smart ones, which I would say the majority, understand that part of the economic equation of why they make the money they make is tied into the median and in large measure tied into television. But, you know, the bloggers and the and the podcasters and the and the writers for, you know, various entities, they're all drumming up interest in sports, and that's why it is a multi-billion-dollar industry. And you're naive if you don't understand that as an athlete. So to have access to these guys is is beyond important. It's essential. So if you now say, "Well, we're going to close off the locker room forever," um, 
that's not going to fly. You have to have access. It has compromised our ability as broadcasters um, ac- across Major League Baseball, um, NBA, NHL, to be able to pass anecdotes along because we don't have the daily interaction with with athletes. So it it, it is essential, but, but I'm to you it what is. it'll be like down the road. I understand what you're saying because it makes your job you're just a better broadcaster when you have those anecdotes and you have those stories that you just taught, just you had that with that player, right? That you can share. I'm wondering how essential teams are going to think that is. Well, there's, if, if all of a sudden the league came out and said, Hey, we're going to limit access. You're going to have enormous pushback mm-hmm. you're, because remember, it's not just national television money. The biggest revenue, the biggest client of a team in Baseball, basketball, and hockey. The NFL is different because it's all part of national television. Yeah, but those three sports, their biggest client is their region is their regional television partner. And I always think that you guys would be led in. I'm just wondering, like, because it got so crazy with the bloggers and the podcasters that we are. That so many people. I I I'm sh- I'm pretty sure they're gonna maybe you know, make it a shorter list. It'll, it'll be an interesting story to follow yeah. um, in the future. You know what is an amazing story to follow is the Nuggets. So excited for them. Uh, you know what was really cool? Buddy Black in his pregame press conference, pregame Zoom call these days before the game Wednesday afternoon against the Oakland A's, he said, hey, I'm thrilled for the for the Nuggets. He had reached out right after the game to Mike Malone, who he's developed a relationship with. I think it's really cool when when all the, the head coaches or, in the case of baseball, managers know each other, root for each other, pull for each other. I think it's great for the city. And he, he immediately reached out. And, and he and Mike Malone texted back and forth late last night. Um, you know, in congratulatory fashion. And, you know, Mike Malone said, hey, I'm pulling for you guys these next couple of weeks. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's, I don't think anybody give, gave them uh, the shot to do what they've done to go to the Western Conference Finals. It will be, I know against Utah, I, that was when I think I had buried them. It will be interesting to see what they do against the Lakers, although I, w- I would already call this season a win. They're, they're on house money right now. The Lakers are going to realize that. But, but let's not forget one thing. It's a really, really good basketball team, really talented basketball team. NBA, more than any other sport, maybe short of the NFL, gravitates toward its stars. And we we associate great success, great playoff success, championship caliber teams by the stars they have. So LeBron and AD are going to be looked upon as, well, they're, they're the kingpin because they're now playing together. And they have good complementary pieces also. People in the know, people who follow basketball, even though Jokic and Murray don't have the basketball household names, they realize, whoa, this is not only a team with a couple of legit stars on it, but maybe the deepest roster well, throw in Gary the Harris NBA. in there. I mean, he may not have those gaudy numbers, but they would not have gotten to the Western Conference Finals without Gary Harris. They have pieces. They have guys that can defend, like like Harris, like Torrey Craig, and and they have a guy that very few teams are going to have an answer for in Jokic. Yeah, the Joker's amazing, and that Game Seven, phenomenal. And you're talking about on the other side, a couple of really big names. And in the case of Leonard, maybe the best player in the NBA now. And who had better numbers in this critical game seven, Murray or Leonard? Wasn't even close. Right. I'm excited about it. It's great for the town. Um, as, as somebody that did their games for 10 years, and I think they won more in the last month than they did in the 10 years that I was covering them, um, I'm really happy for them. So that series gets started on Friday. The NFL opened up for the Broncos on Sunday, obviously last Sunday, against Tennessee. Timeout, Julie. When did it open? Oh. Oh, we oh, we don't have a timeout, or we do have timeouts left. No. Oh God, I know what you're doing. Wow, does that fly over your head? <laughs> oh God, Big Fangio and I happen to be good friends and share a lot of interests, and apparently, it's timeouts going over our heads. You know what? Listen, Vic Fangio is a really likable guy. Very. I don't, I don't, I don't know him. All right, I don't. And a good defensive coach. He has been in his career. A renowned defensive coordinator. Yeah. Okay. The jury's out on him as a head coach. One of the essential tools of a head coach 
is game management. It's leadership. It's game management. It is not necessarily being a play caller. There have been a lot of great head coaches who were great leaders, motivators, good time management folks who were never known for their X's and O's, never known for being you know, this wonderful play caller. Vic Fangio screw up on Monday night was bad. So after the game, he kind of blew it off that, you know, tried to kind of hide it. And then the next day he said, I was, you know, thinking about the next defensive series on the stop. And that's, I think, where he got held up. Well, if you are going to be that distracted, then you have to give up the play calling responsibilities defensively. Or learn from your mistake. No head coach is going to give up the play re- the play calling responsibilities. Here's where I really worry about it. This is a team still in transition. Nobody's picking them to win the Super Bowl this year. But you have, every year in the NFL, you have significant roster turnover. It is a young man's league. A lot of young players in that league. And they look for direction from their head coach. And that moment affects the trust and confidence level players may have. When they're looking over there and they're like, is he going to call a timeout? Because you don't have to be you know, a member of Mensa to realize that you need to call a timeout there to give your offense a chance. You can stop the clock on the offensive side of the ball in football. You cannot stop the clock unless you have a timeout on the defensive side of the ball. I'm not saying it was a mistake and he admitted it, but let's not fire Vic Fangio for making that. I'm not firing him, Julie. I'm just telling you how that will play in the room from a confidence in the leader's standpoint. But let's see how that plays out. I think think if there's gaffes, Vance Joseph had some gaffes, right? And so I think that led to a lot of um, people not having confidence within the organization. And that probably went over to the players. Let's see how this plays out. Because it's it's a young roster. It's like there's enough to worry about with this young roster other than your head coach not, not knowing game management. I totally agree. But when people talk about, oh my God, you should let this guy go, and this is it, and it's like, I'm, all right, I'm not firing. I'm not firing anybody one game into the season. But that was troubling. It was troubling. That was troubling. What also happened on Monday that prevented a victory was their prize number one pick, and I'm probably going to go in a little different direction than you think here. Jerry Judy dropping a couple of passes. Now, will a receiver drop a pass every once in a while? You hope it, it's not many especially when you're supposed to be a number one or number two receiver, at least initially, with Cortland Sutton's presence. Um, but the second drop probably cost them a victory because they're going to move the chains and they may be able to run out the clock or make it extremely difficult for the Titans at that point in time. I'm not worried about Jerry Judy because of one game, his initial experience in the NFL. You saw his great ability to get open. You saw the wiggle. You saw the route running ability. Um, But it's essential that when the ball's thrown in your direction and it's catchable, that you catch it. 100%. I'm cutting him a lot of slack. I'm cutting him a lot of slack. I think he's going to be a heck of a player. I'm cutting the head coach less slack because he's been in the business a long, long time, and he cannot make that mistake. And I don't know who's in his ear, but somebody else. You know, I know Pat Shermer just got here, but he just came off a stint. He's had a couple stints as a head coach. Somebody's got to get in his ear, coach. We got to call timeout. We got to get the clock stopped. Right, and I'm just wondering because they're getting to know each other. Was it not like this comfortability to be like, what, what are we doing there? I do think that there were. I actually never thought. I think the Broncos were going to have a tough time to win that game because that was a much more experienced Tennessee team that came in, even though the game was at home, which didn't really mean anything because there was nobody at home, right? There was nobody in the stands to watch. So I actually kind of thought that, that Tennessee would win that game. However, when the when the, when the the kicker misses so many field goals, you got to take advantage of that. Yeah, you got to take advantage of that. They're in position to win it. Yes, Tennessee is a better team. They have a better roster right now. That doesn't matter. You were in position to win the football game. You can't rest on Guskowski missing another one. This guy's probably a Hall of Fame kicker. He had an awful day, but you can't say, oh yeah, he's going to miss another one. It's not me out there kicking. I mean, come on. Okay, so did you feel though good about like, all right, this Drew Locke kid... 
I like Drew Locke. I do Obviously, too. Obviously, we like how he finished. You know, you take away a couple of drops. I mean, his numbers, right? It was 22 out of 33. He Scrambled throw, a bit. He didn't, he's a good athlete. Mm-hmm. Didn't throw it to the other team. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in on Drew Locke. I got no issues with Drew Locke. And uh, I, I, I know it's going to be tough next month because you look at that schedule. Not easy. Yeah. So they have Pittsburgh next week. So during COVID, I would, my favorite question as we end of the podcast would always be, so Drew, what are you doing tomorrow? What am I doing tomorrow? <laughs> Julie, I'm glad you asked that. The Dodgers are in town. That's a night game. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something different. I'm going to work out. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Would you ever want to, I know you completely, you love this. You love this job. Would you ever want to be out in a big market? I always, I always loved being in this market. It's a big market, but it's not an obscene market. Does that make sense? I've never, I don't want to say I've never given that thought. The only, you know, years and years and years ago, because I'm a Colorado now. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm a New, I'm New York born and bred, and I'm proud to be a you know a New Yorker. I love getting my New York fix when things are normal, and you know mm-hmm. you can wander around the city and go go back home that sort of thing. But um, no, because quality of life, especially as you get older, um, quality of life is essential, and. I brag all the time. People have no idea how great our weather is. You almost want to keep it a secret. People have no idea the quality of life, or maybe they do, that, that we have versus so many other places. So, no. I love Denver. I love the mountains. I love the West. I love being fortunate enough to do what you know I do and what we do uh, here in, in town. So, speaking of quality of life, to end the podcast, would you like another beer? Twist my mouth. Have a great week, everybody.